You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose No Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. Uh, and welcome to another edition of the Bozno Show, and I'm your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich, and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira as Robin, my producer extraordinaire, tries to slip in a little twisted sister there, uh, <laughs> which is a, somewhat of a, of a reference to uh, uh, several weeks back, we had public comment for one of our board meetings and uh, had a very passionate um, public comment from a, a young lady that was, you know, against vaccine mandates. And uh, she closed her public comment by singing, we're not going to take it anymore. <laughs> uh, but I will, Robin got me off track there, so I'm going to try and regroup and get back to, to, to what I want to talk about today. But First things, I always like to remind folks, we are a call-in show, 646-721-9887, and just press 1, and that lets us know you want to actually get in on the show and talk instead of just calling in to listen. Again, 646-721-9887, just press 1, lets us know you want to get on the show. Um, Robin, your mic's up still. Uh, so, Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, so, student-run radio today, Robin and I were joking before we came on the air, uh, I get a little feedback, too, before we came on the air that, uh, you know, we, we're not the excellence in broadcasting folks, we are student-run radio, so our, uh, our instead of, you know, the EIB network, the, we're the SRR. <laughs> You get what you pay for. Neither Robin and I get paid for the show. We don't have any advertising, so you don't have to listen to any ads. So we are student-run radio. But there are a bunch of things to talk about today because, you know, last week I had David Lovell on the show, and we mostly talked about David and his background and, you know, why he wanted to run for county commissioner and all that good stuff. It was a great show. David's a really interesting guy. He's led a really interesting life. Um, But talking all about the previous board meeting and we had another board meeting. So there's two weeks worth of board meetings to talk about. And in all that stuff, there's this whole thing, you know, that, that I kind of got in the news about, you know, whether or not vaccine mandates might actually be structurally racist. Um, And uh, so I want to, you know, finish that conversation a little bit, move on to some other conversations because it's getting time to hold on to your wallet for a bit because we're starting to have all these conversations at the board about where we need revenue to pay for programs, et cetera. And whenever you hear a 
public bodies start talking about need for revenue, you can equate that to taxes and fees somewhere down the road. So time to hold on to your wallet and start listening carefully because those early conversations about the need for revenue usually translate to taxes later. So we'll talk about that some. We got other things we can talk about that you know came up during board meetings. Uh, you know, talking about you know some land use issues with Goshen and trying to get that redeveloped, and maybe that's a good place to use some ARPA money. Uh, we also talked about our prioritization and, mate, and, and how we're going to judge projects as they come up and programs that we want to fund with that uh, American Rescue Plan Act funding that came from the federal government, that $1.9 trillion in unsupported uh, deficit spending, and we wonder why we have 5% inflation, uh, not just the supply chain, print $1.9 trillion in cash, it's going to be inflationary, but we'll get to that too, all sorts of things to talk about on the Bo's Nose Show. But let's start out with that whole vaccine mandate thing. And, you know, I, I want to talk about it briefly, and then I want to get away from it, because we, we, we've beaten this horse to death, I think, on the Bo's Nose Show on several programs. It is clear to me that there is a disparity based on demographic groups in vaccination rates. Our data shows it. The state's statewide data shows it. CDC's national data shows it. Minorities are lagging well behind Caucasians, whites, however you want to call it, in vaccination rates. And right here in Lane County, it's it's a 20 percentage point gap to the first significant minority that we have. We have one minority that actually has a higher rate, but it's not one of our it's a, one of our very smallest minorities, which is Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders actually have a higher rate than whites here in Lane County. But uh, when you get down to the Hispanics, Blacks, and Native Americans are 30 points behind whites, um, there's a difference there. And my concern was the vaccine mandates might be differentially impacting the employment of people based on that differential rate vaccination rate in a way that could be construed as racist. I, I, and I have troubles with that term because I, I am a firm believer there is only one race, but it might be prejudicial against certain minorities. And we talked in the Bo's Nose show about why those minorities might lag. They have had equal access to get vaccinated. In fact, we've actually done quite a bit in Land County and spent a significant amount of funding from the state to do outreach to those groups to try and specifically get them to be vaccinated. But the vaccine hesitancy in those groups is a is cultural historic perspective of distrust of the medical profession in the US due to past abuses of those groups. And we've talked about how the black community has been experimented on, how the Native American population was, you know, being sterilized without their knowledge and consent. You know, there's just a a really bad history that leads to that distrust. 
and that and that's what leads to that differential. And that differential can only be overcome with time and trust, not coercion. <laughs> In fact, the coercion leads to greater distrust. But that all said, you know, brought that to the fore to, you know, not this last board meeting, but the board meeting the week before, and actually put a motion to delay the mandate implementation in Lane County for employees until we could resolve whether or not there is a differential. I got voted down. You know, I was supportive of it and for against. I was on the downside of that vote. No one wanted to delay to see if they're, you know, to do further research and, and look at ways of closing that gap that weren't coercive. Um, that said, what one of the things that was promised in that meeting was that our staff would come back with data specific to our employees because one of the reasons some of the, the board members voted against my motion was they didn't know whether the population trends for Lane County translated to similar trends in our employee population. Now, I'm pretty sure that there's not much of a difference, uh, but you know, I was I, I was like, great, okay, I'll I'll wait till next week. I'll hold fire, you know, before I fight for this any harder, and let's see the data. Fast forward to this week, and we're basically given data on just the employees that the state mandate applies to, not the entire uh, Lane County employee population was what what we I was hoping we were going to get some data on. Subset of the state October. 18th deadline on healthcare workers, which we have a significant number of that qualify to be under the state's mandate, 680 to be exact, that they had to show their their uh, vaccine um, compliance by Monday, or they needed to have an exemption requested and, and approved, or they you know would be terminated. Well, out of that 680, um, there was uh, 646 that complied with the vaccine requirement. So that's pretty significant percentage, but you would you might expect that higher percentage in our medical employees. They're part of the profession, a lot of more trust. But what we didn't get was any demographic data other than out of the 680, 22% were considered people of color. They didn't break it down any further for us. And they wouldn't tell us of the 34 employees that either requested exemptions or were terminated, which only six were terminated, um, what percentage of those people were people of color. So we at least have some comparison to see if there was any sort of disparity in those that are, you know, the people that are being granted exemptions are being required to wear um, N95 masks at work and get tested once a week. So it's not like they're completely, you know, going to be kind of obvious to their coworkers, you know, when they show up with a N95 mask. Um, that there's, you know, they're, they're probably one of those people under exemption. Um, so didn't get any data there. It was 
highly disappointed. And the cover for not supplying the data was, well, the number of people involved was too small to be statistically significant. And if we did release some of that data, it might point out to people whose, you know, individual people's names and, 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 you know, they might be able to figure out identities. And that's why we don't want to give out the data. You know, it's kind of like when we're doing our zip code data and there's less than 10 people, we just say zero to nine as far as cases go in various zip codes because uh, this population is so small. And I get that, you know, if maybe you were talking about the six that were terminated, but 34 is a big enough group. You probably could have had the data and not compromised anybody. Let's put that in perspective with the state of Oregon, who on Monday, you know, had their big deadline and all that stuff. And in an attempt to supply the two largest newspapers in Oregon with on how many people complied and how many people requested exemptions and how many people were terminated at the state level actually gave a by name list, complete list of all the employees that were under the mandate, vaccination status, whether, whether they requested a, a exemption, whether it was religious or medical, or whether they were terminated for noncompliance. And in all that also noted where they worked, and, and it had other personal information on that spreadsheet that was turned over without any filtering or anything to those two largest newspapers in the state of Oregon. So not only did it have HIPAA-protected information on it, medical information, with individual identification, it even had, you know, enough information that, you know, I'd be pretty afraid if I was somebody working in, you know, child services or, um, you know, any sort of uh, law enforcement or wherever where there's, you know, people out there in public that may not be happy with you. And if they could get a hold of that spreadsheet, too, they might be able to find you. It's just, it was I, I can't believe the data breaches that are state allows. I mean, what is it with the state of Oregon and IT services? We can't distribute rental assistance on time. We can't deal with unemployment in this state. You know, everything about IT seems to just go boom in this state. Remember Cover Oregon? One of these days, Robin, we got to dig up that cover Oregon song. <laughs> but uh, it's like, oh, my gosh. You know, on one hand, you know, here in Lane County, we can't even give demographic percentages out because it might identify people. Meanwhile, the state's giving out spreadsheets with individuals' names and vaccination statuses. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Um I, I can I just say I was highly disappointed and felt like I got stonewalled and that they dodged this whole issue about whether or not vaccine mandates do create any disparity and if there is any structural issues involved in that. Now, mind you, yesterday we also had a presentation on Lane County's equity lens, which is something 
I support doing because it's a way of kind of testing whether or not policy might actually have disparate impact on minorities <laughs> and continue, you know, have and also it requires some of the input from those those groups as you develop policies and, and programs. Mind you, the mandates were adopted, you know, in, in our closed door executive sessions by the board or at least recommended by the board and, and, and endorsed by the board without going through the equity lens process. Now, since that meeting that I brought this up and tried to get them delayed, our administrator has scrambled and, you know, taken a lot of staff time and tried to run the, 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 the mandate through the equity lens in less than a week. And of course, the conclusion was, well, we should have started the, you know, done this up front rather than doing it tail end, but it wouldn't have changed the outcome of the decision making process. And I kind of have to scratch my say, head and say, really? <laughs> so, you know, the equity lens is fine, except for when it, it comes to a, a, a program that, you know, certain people want to have pushed through whether or not. And, and I just have to say, the equity lens is kind of like a decision tree thing. You know, one of the first things that, you know, what is the outcome you're trying to achieve? And I have my own lens I like to put on decisions. And it's a lens I put on a lot of things, not just my governmental decisions, my personal decisions in life. My base philosophy is, is, is a libertarian philosophy with a small L. One of the things I believe in strongly is the minimization of the use of force. As you go through life as a person, you should use as little force against other people as you possibly can. And hopefully a lot of your dealings are for mutual benefit and consensually agreed upon between two adults. Whether that's how much I get in wages from a, from a, a person that I'm working for or how much I ask for when I'm selling my car. You know, I don't want to, you know, use, you know, force to gain an advantage in those interactions. Now let's get to the subject of vaccine mandates. And I've got this threefold test that I use when I, when I think about using force. And if a mandate where you can be terminated employment-wise for not complying with and you won't be eligible for unemployment is a use of force. It's coercion. Look it up in the dictionary. <laughs> okay. Threefold test. Is it necessary? Second, will it be effective? Third, what are the unintended and possible negative consequences? So I've explained this to somebody because I have a concealed weapon license because I've had my life threatened as an elected official, I do carry. And one of the things you roll through in your mind and you've been trained to do, if you've done decent training with a handgun, is making those decisions about when you use it. 
Is it justified? Is it necessary? That first question. Only with threat of bodily harm and loss of life to yourself or someone nearby. That's the only justification of using deadly force, right? James Bond, you know, or Quinn Eastwood. I don't hit targets 300 yards away with a handgun. Nobody does. It's in the movies. Doesn't happen in real life. So is it effective? Third test, what are the negative consequences? And uh, that that is, you know, you know, if I'm about to get the crap beaten out of me by somebody a whole lot bigger, but that person's doing that in a shopping mall with a bunch of innocent people behind him, I'm not pulling my weapon. I'm getting the crap beat out of me because if I pull my weapon and miss, I could kill an innocent bystander. Threefold test. Is it justified? Is it effective? What are the negative consequences? Yeah, I could be justified in protecting myself against that guy that might be actually going to do bodily harm and maybe permanent damage and and maybe even kill me. And I could be pretty effective with my handgun at that at that range, probably. But the unintended consequence, the fact that there, I don't have good backdrop, there's other people behind him and everything else, means I don't do it. The gun never leaves my holster. Vaccine mandates. Are they effective? Now, my question is, is those 34 people that didn't comply, do you think they that the mandate helped them get compliant? Secondarily, knowing that 34 people in the healthcare side of Lane County government did not comply, do you think that makes the general public want to comply? So is it truly effective? Is it necessary? Also, eight straight weeks of decreasing case count in the state of Oregon and Lane County. Is it justified? Is it effective? I can't say it, 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 it is. That, that to me is, is, you know, probably the big test. It, you know, it, it's not justified. It's not effective. Then the final test is what are the negative consequences? And that's where we got into that discussion of possible structural racism built into the vaccine mandates because of disparate vaccination rates. That's an unintended consequence. So every level of the test of do you use that government force and coercion fails for vaccine mandates right now. It's not time to go there. We should still be in the education and incentivize side of things, not the mandate, enforce, and punish. I mean, how many times do we hear the the other side of this, the, you know, political spectrum talk about how we need to, you know, get away from imprisoning people. We have to be careful about all that. And we have to do other things. Yet when they when it suits them, they jump right in with the use of force of the government. That's why, you know, I, I feel that small L libertarian philosophy is consistent. 
I'm also against the death penalty because I don't think it's a justified use of force by government. Consistent in decision-making because I've got that test in my head. Minimize that use of force. Put it through that threefold test. Every decision. But I understand, you know, that the state, you know, just decides that they can do things like that, even if they can't control their databases. And Robin's got a special song for us just to remind us how good they are at IT. The enrollment period has begun. Time for you to get for Cover Oregon. It's Cover Oregon. Are you covered? Time for you to get. Sign up today. Today. happen very fast. Things can go from good to very bad. How prophetic were those lyrics for Cover Oregon? <laughs> oh my gosh. I just uh, yeah, I just don't understand how one entity can have so many IT issues over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. I, I It just Boggles my mind, but I hope you weren't one of those state workers that got your personal information released. If you did, I suggest you might want to talk to an attorney because you probably can lay into the state for some good bucks that us taxpayers are now going to be on the hook for because Oregon just can't do IT. And speaking of taxes, another form of government force because just stop paying your taxes and see how long before somebody with a gun shows up on your doorstep eventually. If you don't think taxation is force, do that. Don't pay your property taxes for six years and see if the sheriff doesn't auction off your property. Don't pay your income tax for long enough and see if you don't end up in jail for tax evasion. Taxation is a use of force by government. Therefore, it should be minimized. And we all know that your property tax bills are starting to show up in your mailbox, which I think Robin just got hers. Another hundred bucks more. Yoo-hoo! And, you know, I was talking with somebody on Facebook as I made this post about um, possible, you know, new taxes that might be coming out from Lane County. And she's basically said that, you know, they're having to come back out of retirement because they can't afford retirement anymore. And, and they're, they're, they're rethink, completely rethinking their, their retirement. And I've heard that from more than one person because Property taxes continue to go up. New taxes keep getting added. And, of course, 
when we were printing 1.2, 1.9 trillion in, in cash, and we're talking about printing another, you know, who knows how many trillion more, you know, that's inflationary. At the same time, when you're when you're creating backlogs in in supply chains through everything from you know mandated closures of businesses to uh, you know mandated other issues or that are created supply chain issues and regulations. Mind you, people don't realize some of the backup in the California ports has to do with California's regulation of trucks and that they don't allow certain trucks to operate within the state of California. Think about that for a minute. As they're telling you to do your Christmas shopping now and Costco doesn't have toilet paper anymore. But getting back to taxation, another use of force, we're starting to get these presentations at the board from staff, and you know, staff's well-meaning. They want their programs to be good and effective, and, and I understand that. And particularly, our parks program has been severely underfunded for years. In fact, I was part of that underfunding because I made a choice back in 2011 as we were looking at our 11-12 budget there, um, and even part of the, the 2000, you know, cutting uh, some of the FY. 10-11 budget when I first came into office, we were going to have a, a, a huge shortfall. We had to cut $120 million from our budget. Sheriff's office, parks. Sheriff's office, parks. DA's office, parks. I'm sorry, but law enforcement and public safety win over park services. So we cut them back to the bone. And, and I realized that. And even at the time we cut them back, they were behind on deferred maintenance because they've been underfunded leading up to that. And that, you know, that is creating this backlog and it's building of millions of dollars worth of deferred maintenance in our parks. And at the same time, that creates a need for, you know, more reactive maintenance of our parks, which is more staff time, which is putting pressure on our staff, which we cut back on. So, we're, you know, things are falling apart. I get it. And the price tag's pretty hefty. But they're talking about, you know, a, a serial levy to support parks. They're talking about wanting to get more general fund to support parks. Now, mind you, the largest single user of the general fund is public safety. About 67% goes to the DA and the sheriff and our youth services department that, that relates to public safety. So when you start talking general fund, you start talking competing with some pretty critical services. And the other thing they've, they've looked at is maybe we can increase the tipping fees at, at the landfill to pay for parks which I don't understand how trash services relates to park services and raising the fees to, to get rid of your trash should pay for parks. I always like to have taxation relate to the service it supports. Um, you know, there is some tie to put our park system and the value of your home and business, but you know, that's still just looking at that. Mind you, 
This is a couple weeks after our public works department came to us and did another presentation, very similar to the park stuff, bemoaning the, you know, the long-term underinvestment in our stormwater systems and the increasing requirements of the federal and state government on stormwater systems and the increasing compliance costs with that and the possible need to have some kind of revenue streams to support stormwater outside of our road fund. So there's two programs now that are pushing the board towards this. And of course we can we've had you know presentations about the need for supporting supportive housing and all the homeless programs that everyone wants us to get involved in. So just program after program. Meanwhile one of the things that sits languishing in the in the commissioner's bookshelves is a report called the Public Safety Repair Plan that we got presented on last December. And in that Public Safety Repair Plan is how we were going to try and reconstruct our public safety system, which even though we, we, we prioritized back when we made those huge budget cuts in 2011 and had to repeat the next year and year after, and uh yeah um we cut a lot of public safety out of our system and and we have a broken public safety system in this county and, and part of that public safety system is our mental health system so i'm not saying it's not disconnected from helping our homeless population there's a tie between the homeless situation and our public safety systems being broken. Um, so we've got this public safety repair plan, and when you look in there, there's millions and millions of dollars of need in our public safety system, talking about that. Let alone, we're going to have to go back to the voters in a year and a half and get our sheriff's levy renewed, which that's the you know, one of the repairs we made was to pass a levy so we could actually have enough jail cells. We wouldn't have to release, you know, measure 11 offenders back out onto the street because we didn't have capacity. But yeah, I had Robin was prompting me with a, a, a little note on the side here that look, who's the largest user of our park systems? And she was wondering if it was a homeless thing. In, in Eugene, that might be true, but the Lane County Park System, I don't think that's not that's necessarily true. Our, our parks are so uh, away from metropolitan areas and so well utilized by the general public, I can't say that. But I wouldn't doubt that we don't have a few illegal campers in some of our natural areas out there in some of our parks. Um, but the vast majority of our users are um, tax-paying residents of Lane County and visitors. We have a huge impact on tourism. So, yeah, I, I get it. If, if you were talking about a, a parks levy for um, Eugene, that would, that, you know, you might as well just call it a homeless levy. <laughs> Only have to go by Washington Jefferson Street to see that and some other parks in, in Eugene or any street right away. So their road funds also supporting the homeless population. Um, so, but I digress. 
I just wanted to make people aware that those conversations are starting, which means you better be paying attention to who your elected representatives are and asking yourself, do they think like Commissioner Bozovich? Do they start out with that philosophy of minimizing the use of force of government? Do they put their decisions through that test? Is it necessary? Is it effective? What are the possible negative consequences? Because if you, if this board stays populated, people that are more likely to not utilize that test don't have a consistent philosophy on the use of government force. In fact, they actually support it when it, when it supports their ends because they have basically the ends justify the means. And if the means are, you know, taxing our senior citizens into the poorhouse, you know, they go, they, they go there. Because they'll blame the, re, the senior citizens being in the poorhouse on some other societal issue, not the fact that they, they, there's an insatiable demand for revenue in government. We have to be careful about how we do this. I'm not denying that parts doesn't need money. I'm not denying that we need to figure out a way to keep our stormwater systems up and running. What I'm denying is where we might get the money. Now there's this thing that wouldn't require any use of force by government. We've got a huge asset that's growing, dying, and decaying in our state and in this county. It's called federal force. It has a value that can be auctioned off by mutual consent from the government to a bidder. The receipts of that harvest come back to the federal government and is shared with the counties. And that's what used to pay for our parks. In fact, that's what built a lot of our parks back in the 70s was federal timber money. It's what used to pay for maintaining our road system, including the storm drains. We need to get back to actually harvesting timber off of our federal lands, particularly the Oregon and California railroad lands that were set aside by an act of Congress for the primary purpose of harvest and generating revenue for counties. Like I said, elections have consequences. And if you elect people that are willing to use the force of government to add taxation, at the same time, this same group of people, because they're anti-timber harvest, have removed us from the one organization that advocates for the ONC lands to be harvested, or at least for the federal government to give us money that is actually adequate enough to adjust for what should have been harvested. I'm talking about my fellow progressive commissioners that voted against it, you know, paying dues into the association of ONC counties here in Oregon several years in a row 
and that is Commissioner Buck, Commissioner Bernie, and our newest commissioner, Commissioner Trieger. We continue to elect those kind of commissioners. They're not going to want, they're going to keep keep us out of the ONC Counties Association. In fact, they're going to lobby to lock the forest up and let them grow old and die, even though a lot of them were actually planted specifically for the purpose of harvest so that the trees aren't far enough apart and need to be harvested. And even though they say it's to to help with climate change, that kind of crowded forest burns and it burns hot to the point where it's not even a, a, a good burn, you know, like like a, a true natural forest might have a have a have an understory burn that actually helps the forest. No, it's a complete regenerative clearing burn like we saw in the Holiday Farm fire. Without actually tending to our forest, having road systems available, clearing the underbrush, and then ultimately harvesting, we are just going to be adding carbon to the atmosphere when they burn. We'll be adding methane to the atmosphere when the logs fall over and rot. But don't mind the science. Don't mind the numbers and all that stuff. We've got an agenda. And that agenda is, you know, we're the elite. We know better. We're going to tell you what to do. And you don't really, you know, we can figure out what to do with your money better than you can. So we're going to go after your pocketbooks. Instead of generating money for government while also generating jobs and wealth, Think of all the jobs tied to that timber harvest. Think of all the wealth created. Think of the carbon sequestered in the lumber that gets harvested. And the, and the fact that it will help keep the price of lumber down. Everybody remembers what happened to housing earlier in the year when, when the COVID you know, disruptions to supply chain and mills caused you know, a sheet of plywood to go from 20 bucks to over $100. Now, suddenly people had to stop their houses mid-project because they couldn't afford to finish them. You care about housing costs, you should be all for working on our timber issues. But those same people that will stand up in a board meeting and demagogue the whole homeless issue and the housing crisis are voting against harvesting timber. And want to even shut down private timber lands if they had the had the ability. Ah, uh, yes. I digress, and I keep forgetting to remind people this is a call-in show. I got it on, on a roll there for a minute. Six four six seven two one nine eight eight seven. Just press one when you get in, so we know you want to get in on the conversation again. Six four six seven two one nine eight eight seven. And that's all it takes to get in on the Bo's Nose Show. What else do we have to talk about today? Oh, I know I wanted to talk a little bit about ARPA. Speaking of money, so $1.9 trillion, we're going to get about $37 million in the first 
part of it, and we'll get another $37 million in the second part. But we're trying to, you know, decide how we're going to spend that. And, of course, you know, a certain amount of it's just going to be to make up for lost revenues during the COVID pandemic. Because when we closed everything down, a lot of people didn't have the ability to pay taxes or they weren't earning money. So, you know, all sorts of taxation like rental car taxes and uh, room taxes because we weren't letting people travel and, and all that stuff just kind of just died. Um, so we got to make up for that revenue. So a good portion of that money is going to be just to make up lost revenue so we can keep programs running. But then there's a lot of it that could be spent on various projects. And, of course, the federal government put some sideboards on what you can spend it on and all that stuff. But we also wanted to put our own, you know, how we want to prioritize things. And I was pretty happy with the matrix that the staff came up with how to judge projects. Because one of the things I was really concerned about was people would start new programs or expand programs that had ongoing costs associated with them with this one-time federal money. And then suddenly a couple of years from now, when it was a choice between cutting something that was gonna be, oh, we can't cut that because we're gonna have to throw grandma out on the street type thing. Um, suddenly that's gonna be another justification for raising local taxes. So glad that, that the matrix kind of says, those sort of things are low priority. What's high priority are one-time expenditures that actually have enough innovative work that they'll save money in the long run. And I gave as an example one of those things yesterday that, you know, our jail is got a control system that dates back to like the 80s, um, you know, with the great big green red buttons and stuff like that. And, and, you know, almost, yeah, it almost looks like, you know, something uh, from a Star Trek movie, you know, sort of control sort of system, you know, and I mean the first Star Trek with William Shatner, who just came back from space. Can you believe that one? Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it looks like something right, you know, from those set designers, it, it's so old the, that controls, Everything from, you know, access to the elevators to doors opening, closing, and it's just, you know, they literally have to go on eBay and other places looking for parts when things break down. <laughs> it's that bad. Um, but modernizing that system could actually make it more efficient in how they'd be able to move inmates around and everything and actually save some FTE. And at the same time, there are other pieces of the jail that need a whole lot of upgrades, and particularly their ability to to um, utilize computer interaction with inmates. And one of the things during the pandemic they found they can't do face-to-face -face, uh, visitations and all that, so they're they're having to do a lot of video stuff. And they literally had set up a computer in one area of the jail that was on an IV uh, a, a, a AV cart that looked like it came out of my sixth grade classroom. <laughs> you know, should have had a slide projector and a record player there, you know. <laughs> and when the record beeped, you, you changed the slide. You remember those? Um, it, it, it was, I mean, it was that vintage, you know, with this, this box of a computer that also probably looked like it was at least 10 years old. And that was what the, the inmates were using to interact, you know, with their you know, public defenders or whatever else, maybe do some family visitation. 
We need to upgrade that whole system in the jail. And it could do so much, one, to help efficiencies in the jail, and two, to help the inmates be less aggressive, less destructive, because if you're giving them access to, you know, better access to family visitation, especially video family interaction, um, better access to their uh, counselors and, and, you know, mentors that, that might be on the outside, better access to, um, you know, their, you know, whatever religious needs they have, better access to their public defenders. It's good for them and, and helps the jail function better. So it's just, you know, one of those projects, you know, a little bit of capital investment, one-time expenditure saves in the long run because trying to keep the antiquated systems they have running right now are just, you know, not a good thing. So if we are going to get federal money that's been printed, at least we're going to try and use it well. And, you know, other thing, you know, the other part about doing it in these one-time expenditures, it tends to go into the community because we're probably buying from local providers or contractors are doing the work. So there's, a, you know, that money kind of spreads out into Lane County. So there is some economic stimulus to it. But there, you know, that's that's kind of what we're looking at with that, that ARPA funding is, is doing some of those things. But one of the things that is particularly called out in ARPA is water and sewer projects or, or investments are really encouraged. And we are going to use some of that money for rebuilding the Blue River water and, and putting in a new sewer system up there that was devastated by the Holiday Farm Fire. But there's another opportunity in Lane County, but it's going to require some um, cooperation from the city of Eugene and Springfield because we have to amend the Metro plan to do it, is extending sewer service down to the Goshen industrial areas. And we've done the goal 14 exceptions and gone through a lot of the preliminary steps um, to get that area ready to develop. All that needs is sewer service. And that we could use some of those ARPA funds to do that actual capital improvement. But we have to get the Metro plan for Eugene Springfield amended to allow for that sewer extension down there. Now, mind you, during another government stimulus program, and, I, and I'm going to take people back to the Obama administration, and when they first came in and were trying to get us to recover from the 2008 real estate crash, they put out a big stimulus program where they wanted shovel-ready projects, and they were investing in certain things. And one of the things they wanted to do was green energy projects. Remember how, how important that was, and they pushed a lot of money out into the solar industry? Well, there was a big solar firm that wanted to build a huge plant in Oregon. They could not even start with Lane County because we didn't have an industrial zone piece of property that met their size requirements. Almost all of our unused or underutilized and available pro properties that are zoned industrial are under 50 acres. In fact, a lot of them are five acres or less. And when you're looking at putting in a big manufacturing plant, think Hynix size, you need a bit more 
than just five acres. And the Goshen area could offer that to us, where we'd have that ability to capture that that sort of project in the future. So an important you know, long-term economic strategy for Lane County, you know, to get some industrial lands prepped and ready and shovel ready for the next time somebody comes around. I don't necessarily propose that it should be a government subsidized solar project, but whatever it is, we are out of the running for large industrial projects in this county because we just don't have any large industrial lands available. So that's an interesting aspect of the ARPA. You know, if we're going to make use of that money, let's make use of it well. So, but that, you know, it does involve this whole concept of we are going to have to amend the Eugene Springfield Metro Plan, which, you know, the last time an attempt was made to amend it to extend sewer down to Short Mountain, which, by the way, this is going to resolve a big issue for Lane County landfill because right now we truck the liquid that comes off the landfill, Glenwood, where we pump it into a sewer manhole where it goes to the sewage treatment plant. But we run trucks up and down I-5 from Short Mountain. there just outside of Goshen every day, back and forth, 365 days a year in whatever weather at, you know, who knows how much cost, you know, paying for fuel for the trucks, paying for a driver for the truck, could be in a pipeline pumped a lot cheaper. Hmm, pipelines, cheaper than trucking or or trains. Where have I heard that before? Why is gas almost $4 a gallon? Hmm, pipeline, Keystone. Oh yeah, now I remember. <laughs> Yeah, it makes a whole lot of sense to get that sewer down to, to, to Goshen because it does also solve a major issue with the, with the solid waste disposal site for the entire county. Saves money, saves carbon footprint, environmentally much more sound. Keystone Pipeline, same thing. If you don't think that oil's moving some other way, you're you're just you're you're not thinking straight. It is. Of course, I, I wouldn't say that 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 there's a certain billionaire that owns a lot of trains that might have been a major force behind killing the Keystone Pipeline that he didn't contribute to candidates that were against it. But never mind. No ulterior motives there. So, got about four minutes left here. Anything on on the brain there? I haven't brought you in, Robin. I managed to 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 dominate the hour. <laughs> That's okay. It's really good. All right. I didn't know you had your tax statement. I was just kind of waiting for you to, to jump in there when we started talking taxes. <laughs> Uh, well, I, it just goes along with uh, what I've been saying is that sooner or later I'm going to have to move because I wouldn't be able to afford my house. In fact, kind of interesting is that with housing prices right now, if I had to buy my house right now, I couldn't afford it. 
Yeah. I don't know if I could buy my house again right now. Uh, it's just, yeah, it's, it's getting insane. And that's, you know, no one acknowledges the role government has had in increasing housing costs in Oregon. I mean, Senate Bill 100, while well-meaning, has created a shortage of housing because it's really constrained developable property, made that property so valuable that no one wants to build affordable housing on it. They want to build high-end housing on it because that's the way they're going to get a return on buying that overpriced piece of ground that goes under the house. But, you know, when you constrain the ground available for development, you increase the cost of housing. Well, I, I got kind of a radical idea. Yeah. At what percentage uh, from the city of Eugene, you know, the city of Eugene property, you know, downtown, is it compared to how much Phil Knight owns with the University of Oregon? <laughs> uh, Should we just go ahead and just change the name Sell the, sell the remaining one-third of the property of Eugene to Phil and let him run everything. I don't know. They sure managed to make things look really nice around Hayward Field there right before the Olympic trials. You know, suddenly I didn't see any sidewalk uh, outdoorsmen and, uh, you know, in that vicinity of Eugene. <laughs> so Phil's got some pull. Ah, uh, yes. But, yeah, well, I hope that we can manage to figure out how to pay for the services in Oregon while we're sitting on, you know, billions of dollars in wealth in our standing force that's being untapped. You know, hopefully we can tap some of that wealth and it's green wealth. It's regenerable. It grows back. If we could tap into that, maybe we wouldn't have to be constantly asking homeowners to continue to pay more. We wouldn't be constantly, you know, having price increases that add to that inflation index that makes seniors lose value in their re retirement incomes. Well, we'll be back next week, maybe with a little less depressing show. I, you know, having David on at least was a, a breath of fresh air for us. Maybe I need to find another guest next week, Robin, so I don't talk about taxes and, and using the force of government and the economy. But we'll be back regular time, 4 o'clock Pacific, on Wednesday here on Caribbean Internet News Talk Radio. I want to thank you for listening and have a great week. Oh, I hope you're never injured And I hope you're never sick But what would happen If you have health problems Will you get the medicine Will you get the treatment